why are police photographing our license plate? What are we doing for veterans returning home damaged physically and mentally, suffering from depression, homelessness, and suicide? Why did the Supreme Court deposit corporate money into our electoral process? Should we redefine middle class as working poor? Or is it just another Wall Street merger? What's really behind new voter picture ID laws in certain states? Why aren't NBC, ABC, CBS, and Fox asking these questions? Welcome to the Reasonable Voice radio show. I'm your host, Marcello Rolando, the Reasonable Voice. The mission of the Reasonable Voice is to connect the dots between politics and finance, the need for better and more affordable education, our humanity, world peace, and, of course, the arts, which we then gladly provide our listeners, the voting public, as informative food for thought to provoke their self-determination and appetite for equal economic opportunity and justice for all without truth decay. The Reasonable Voices are advocates prioritizing education, preserving our history, leading by example for a peaceful and prosperous world by evoking and embracing both creative artists and political unity as solutions to our challenges. Good afternoon. This is the Reasonable Voices talk radio show. I'm your host, Marcello Rolando. My guest today is Dr. Marcus Martin. He is the Vice President and Chief Officer for Diversity and Equity at the University of Virginia. Good afternoon, Dr. Martin. How are you? Good afternoon, Marcello. I'm doing just fine on this snowy day. I you are as well. (laughs) I am. We're we're, we're sort of snowed in. I know you've been traveling, and I'm glad to hear your voice and that all is well. Thank you, sir. Um, All is well. Yes. We, um, I'd like to start off, if we could, with the Community MLK Celebration. That's Martin Luther King Jr., okay. of course. Sure. The recent, if you will, an ongoing celebration of the life and legacy of Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. and how that legacy is the call to higher ground. I love that. Sure. Talk to us right. about that. Okay, sure will. Well, uh, each year we have a different theme, and uh, I'll just tell you a little bit how the community Martin Luther King Jr. Celebration um, Committee came together. Mm-hmm. Uh, prior, yes, uh, so President Sullivan came to the University of Virginia in 2010, and um, just prior to her arrival on grounds in August of 2010, she asked me mm-hmm. if the Office for Diversity and Equity would could develop a, more of a comprehensive uh, community-based strategy for celebrating the life and legacy of Dr. King. Mm-hmm. President Sullivan had been working in academia in Texas and in Michigan. And I think, you know, in her previous universities, she was used to a more extensive celebration. Mm-hmm. Here at the University of Virginia, we would have maybe one or two programs here at UVA and certainly uh, a major program out in the community. So we took on that challenge, my office and I, during the past six years since President Sullivan has been here. You know, we feel that the community MLK celebration provides a unique opportunity to, to bring together university members as well as uh, community and the public. And um, that coming together, you know, for us at the university illustrates our commitment to community partnerships around diversity and equity. And uh, typically we put on about 25 programs around, you know, the university and the community. We get a broad range of constituents involved in uh, planning. Mm-hmm. Um, we ask the deans of uh, 
each of the schools at the university to to they would nominate or appoint a person to represent their schools. Mm-hmm. But we also get representation from the student body and from the staff, from civic organizations. And typically we end up with about 100 individuals that help us plan. About 50 of those, you know, are ones that we extend an invitation to come in and meet as a community once in September and then once in um, November. Mm-hmm. So we get these uh, various suggestions from the community as well as the university. And when you bring people together at the table, some folks may be thinking, well, the same type of presentation, a panel discussion or a performance or something like that. Mm-hmm. So we do get a lot of synergistic activity of people working on, on events together. And, and these events basically are not necessarily ethnically or racially you know, suggestible events. It could be about anything, mm-hmm. civic engagement, anything that reflects Dr. King's advocacy for civil rights and social justice. Mm-hmm. So we, we have uh, panel discussions, interfaith worship service, lectures, film screenings, art exhibits. And uh, we had a FAFSA night for high school students. Mm-hmm. FAFSA stands for Free Application for Federal Student Aid. Mm-hmm. Uh, students come together and you know we have folks who will give them advice and information as well as their parents on completing FAFSA. Mm. And then there's an, there's an award presentation in the health system on MLK Day. Um, that's been taking place for the last three or four years. Mm-hmm. And then um, some musical performances. So a wide array. We, as you know, had some inclement weather uh, a couple weekends ago. So yes. we had to adjust the schedule. We, we canceled a few programs and rescheduled including our keynote speaker. Oh, yes. Um, Um, uh, Alicia Alicia Garza. Yes. Tell us about her. Well, we had her scheduled for January 25th, I believe it was. She's the co-founder of Black Lives Matter. Yes. And um, and she has been rescheduled to speak at Old Cabell Hall. Uh We we had her scheduled to speak at Colbert Theater, and um, that sold out. You know, we... Yeah. We didn't really sell the tickets, but you have to get tickets in advance. Yes. And all of those tickets went very, very, very quickly. I'm not um, surprised. Yeah. So we decided, let's move it to Old Cabell Hall. Uh-huh. And guess what? <laughs> in a matter of three or four days, those tickets went very quickly as well. So we'll see. I mean, she's very interesting. Co-founder of Black Lives Matter. And so, you know, we'll see what our presentation will be like. We, we have... Um, uh, Marquise Johnson, who will be um, introducing her, mm-hmm. and um, we hope to have one of our local high school choirs to to sing, mm-hmm. and then we'll have a um, question and answer period for her. But um, we're excited about it, and just hope we don't get another big snow during that time. Exactly. It, now, yeah. is this taking place on Friday, February twenty sixth, six to seven? Yeah. Okay. Yes, that's correct. In Old Cabell Hall. Okay. And you don't have a people don't have a ticket now could be a little difficult. Now, sometimes folks will get multiple tickets and then hold on to them and then don't show up. So, you know, if someone really wants to, to come to the event, I would suggest to come to Oak Apple Hall early and, mm-hmm. um, and get in line. And, and the likelihood is you'll, you'll get in. So, but you, you were mentioning the theme, and I, I think the theme this year is ever so important. Mm-hmm. What we do when we have this uh, committee meetings, we, we ask the committee members to suggest a possible theme. Sure. And there were several suggestions. I don't remember all the names right now, but the 
one that got the most votes was the call to higher ground. And this particular theme stems uh, from um, the Selma to Montgomery march. You know, after the march from Selma to Montgomery, Dr. King gave a speech, and he urged that the battle is in our hands, Mm -hmm. and we can answer with creative nonviolence the call to higher ground, to which the new directions of our struggle summons us. This was in 1965, and then he said the road ahead is not altogether a smooth one. There are no broad highways that lead us easily and inevitably to quick solutions, but Mm. but we must keep going. Yes. Um, That's ever so true. And I think, um, you know, we generally will have the community MLK celebration, like the first Sunday or the Sunday just before uh, MLK Day, Uh but uh, Reverend uh, Alvin Edwards organizes that particular event, and he wanted to have it the middle Sunday, you know, the Sunday in the the third Sunday, and uh-huh. um, that's when we got the big snow. Yes. So we ended up holding it the very last Sunday, and it was held at Covenant Church because the capacity at Reverend Edwards Church, uh, considering there was still snow uh, around the sidewalks and the streets, et cetera, yes. I didn't think it was going to be adequate parking. So that was an outstanding event. Um, the MLK Community Choir sang many songs, and it was basically a beautiful Yes. You know, being a person who started out uh, very much in theater, uh, as a theater director and on television, etc., I have always felt, even as, and when I say always, I mean when I was in the sixth grade and, and boys in my neighborhood were collecting bugs and, and you know, <laughs> and spiders and things like that, yeah. I was watching the black and white television of old movies even though uh, I certainly learned as I grew older that uh, Hollywood wasn't always as accurate with its biopics back then. I mean, William Bendix, uh, which still is one of my favorites, performance as Babe Ruth was only on the fringe of accurate history. But nonetheless, as a kid growing up, I, I would watch these things, especially when it came to sports. I'm not a big sports guy, so the uh, now I do better with Ken Burns, but um, uh, but the only thing I knew about the Yankees were if when they made movies about y- Yankee players, uh, <laughs> but but the art and and drama uh, have throughout human history been a a um, a bridge to understanding history, yeah. a, a reflection of history, a, re- a record of history. And I think we're kind of coming back to that and doing a better job yes. of it. So what do you think in specifically for Martin Luther King's uh, uh, life, memory, the call to higher ground? I love that. Yeah, that's a great question. And I was posed with that question not too long ago because the past six years, we have had some fantastic events. Uh, there was a, a play at held the PBCC uh, 2014 Community MLK Celebration. And uh, this play was uh, directed by uh, Leslie Scott Jones, a local person. Mm-hmm. And the name of the play was "I Shall Not Be Moved." Oh uh, yes. And it was a story. Yeah, it was a story of Claudette Colvin. Mm-hmm. Claudette was a 15-year-old young lady who refused to give up her seat on a Montgomery bus. And that was like nine months before Rosa Parks refused mm-hmm. to give up her seat. So through that play, you know, it's certainly a way for the audience to understand. Uh, the life and times of uh, the civil rights movement. Yes. But uh, I came across a, a quote as I was looking up some information, and this quote was is, is as follows. Surely it is not enough to present history as a bald, that's 
guilty mm-hmm. record of the accumulation of facts. Rather, we should help students to interpret, to feel, and in a very real sense, see the, the color, the movement, and the life of the vast panorama of human progress. So that child who has himself or herself enacted a role in some historical episode or has in any other way projected himself back into the historical situation mm-hmm. has to the extent of that participation become historically minded. So yes. another way of, of teaching. So, to, you know, to me, art, drama, are reflection of a culture, or can be. Yes. Audiences can be engaged in the historical topic at hand and, and learn, whereas otherwise they may not have taken the interest to go and read about it. You know, we can reflect the our society, our communities, our culture, through art and drama. And so, and then, too, I think um, when you tell the story correctly, uh, communities can take pride or, or feel a sense of pride through the stories that are told. Mm-hmm. I, I was really disappointed that we were trying to get the staple singers to sing down at the Paramount, and we were working on that back in the summer, but the dates didn't quite work out because mm-hmm. and some of the music that they sang, the civil rights era type music, and... Um, it would have been just great. It would have yes. just been perfect for this uh, higher ground theme. But we didn't get them, so maybe in the future. But we did have one very nice uh, American musical event, and that was held at the Jefferson School African American Heritage Center. Yes. And that was the third week in January, and we had the speaker, Professor Claudrina Harrell, that great few folks here in the community are aware of mm-hmm. Claudrina. Uh, she's a social professor in the Carter G. Woodson Institute of African and African American Studies and the um, Culture and History Department. But anyway, she, she gave a, a very nice talk on um, titled The Soundtrack for a Revolution, African American Music in the Protest Tradition. And basically, she played a lot of the music from the 60s and 70s, mm-hmm. you know, Marvin Gaye music, Nina Simone, group called War, um, Curtis Mayfield. And, and you know, it, you could tell that listening to this music, quite a bit of it was politically charged. Mm-hmm. It's about people getting ready, a song called Mercy, Mercy Me, What's Going On, Marvin Gaye. Yes. So the music during that time kind of carried the mood of, of the revolution. Yes. So, I mean, I think basically through music, uh, she was examining uh, some somewhat of the historic push that African-Americans were making for their own definition, their own self-definition or their own political power. Uh, in recognition. So that was, uh, that was a great event. I, I think that's very true. I, I think as a nation and as different cultures within a nation, we have our uh, different tributaries, uh, historical tributaries, and our art, what we paint, what we draw, uh, our music, what we sing and compose, play, mm-hmm. and of course the written word, uh, the spoken word, whether it be right. plays or poetry or whatever, these really are the lasting record uh, and and uh, when we can get oral history on video, it's one of my favorite things of uh, yeah. of every culture. I wish we could just set that camera down and and listen to the old people who lived through much of this, or or who at least mm-hmm. can carry on the oral tradition of their parents and grandparents. It's really it's vital, I think, for a society to to have the whole story. I guess that's where yeah. I'm going with that. Speaker, a woman by the name of Debbie Irving, mm-hmm. and um, she was invited by the Curry School of Education, and she she spoke on the topic. I am a good person, isn't that enough? Yes. Now, um, 
she's white and she wrote the book Waking Up White and Finding Myself in the Story of Race. Very interesting story. And, and she basically talks about the impact of her whiteness or her white skin, what perceptions she had, where she is now with problem solving, engaging in racial justice work. Mm-hmm. And so she did a slideshow um, and showed us some images of where she grew up in, um, in the Northeast you know, in a predominantly white community and talked about her background and the images that she saw in terms of pictures, you know, pictures of predominantly of men in leadership or white men in leadership and how that in a way her perception of of leadership. But at some point in time when she, you know, attended some conferences, she began to realize that she's been essentially waking up in her own world, mm. but the world's much vaster yes. and some people will say, well, okay, even if I'm white or this color, that color, I'm a good person. I try to do the right thing. But it's often looking even further, even beyond yes. that, to, yes. to see how we as individuals can contribute to make this a better society. So that, that was interesting. And um, as I said, she wrote a book that I have yet to get to read, but mm-hmm. I've got plenty of books to read. I'm try- to read. I'm trying to get there. Another speaker we had, a guy named Martin Berger. Mm-hmm. Uh, he spoke on uh, Birmingham to Ferguson. Uh, the politics of civil rights photography, and oh, uh, wow. that was presented at the Jefferson School of African uh, American Heritage Center. Yes, yeah, he's a professor of history, of art, and visual culture at the University of California, Santa Cruz, mm. and uh, his talk analyzed the creation and circulation of photographs of the Black civil rights struggle in the 1960s. Wow, the riots, you know, captions riots, looting, bring us back to post Katrina when yes. we would see blacks on video going to stores to get food it would be captioned as looting yes as opposed to you know whites perhaps going to try to get food for, for the preservation you know food to eat yes so sometimes through the media how these images are captioned to tell a story perhaps in, in not the right way well i think uh, too often it's a it's the media's self-fulfilling their perception of what the world is and 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 it's a yeah. perception let's face it, it's a perception that a lot of non-minority people have of minority people it's trying to see the truth rather than what we perceive as true uh, that i think is is so important i uh, and right. on that we have to end this segment but i'd like to end it on a quick short story if i can make it short when you talk about uh, the, the woman waking up in her white world I have to confess to that, and until the day I came home from school, and as was my habit before opening the books for homework, I'd turn on the television, and on that day, I stood with my coat half off because what came on the television was someone I only vaguely had heard of. It was Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. doing his I Have a Dream speech. And I was riveted in front of that television with my, I couldn't even take off my jacket. And that was how I had that aha moment and said, you know, there is more going on here that you have to know. Okay. Absolutely. We're going to take a moment. Go ahead, doctor. Go ahead. No, I was just going to say there were plenty more. uh, There were film, other photo and art exhibits that were held during the MLK celebration that we just skimmed the surface a little bit. And uh, so that celebration is complete with the uh, exception of Alicia Gaza on February 26th, we said. Yes. Um, but each year, um, you know, hopefully next year we'll have something very similar with film and uh, 
the movies, film, uh, art, drama, mm-hmm. to enlighten um, the word of Dr. King. Excellent. All right, right. So, ladies and gentlemen, I am talking to Dr. Marcus Martin of the University of Virginia, and he is the Vice President and Chief Officer for Diversity and Equity at the University of Virginia. We will be right back. Please stay with us. And now, another film rental discovery. Welcome to the Indie Film Minute. 2013 was a breakthrough year for the portrayal of the black experience on film. Lee Daniels, the butler, and 12 Years a Slave achieved box office gold. As significant, but largely overlooked, was Fruitvale Station, a true depiction of our times. No one who watches this story of an ordinary young black man in America can come away unmoved. It's no secret that Oscar Grant was killed by the police at the Fruitvale train station just outside San Francisco. The incident might have been deemed as just another thug heroically removed from our streets, except this one was documented by bystanders on their cell phones. The story now is that the officer mistook his gun for his taser. Hmm. While the butler had star power and 12 years the allure of torture porn, Fruitvale Station has current relevance. It captures the reality of odds stacked at birth against so many. There are success stories when character and luck spin miracles of success, but deadly racial, geographic, and socioeconomic poisons abound. The odds insist to the ghetto-born, the iron warehouse, or death. That is your fate. Fruitvale Station. Not in theaters. Discovery through rental. Welcome back to the Reasonable Voices talk radio show. Again, my guest today is the Vice President and Chief Officer for Diversity and Equity at the University of Virginia, which is located in Charlottesville, Virginia, Dr. Marcus Martin. And we have been talking about the of the upcoming event as well as past events for the Community MLK Celebration. A reminder that the Alicia Garza is going to be uh, the keynote speaker on Friday, February 26th from 6 to 7 p.m. on grounds, the call to higher ground. Which hall is it again, uh, Doctor? Old Cabo Hall. Okay. All right. And we were talking a great deal about how art and music and photography, drama, etc., television, documentaries, obviously, make a record of history. And too often in the past, we've kind of had not the entire history told. We're doing a little better with that now, but we still need more. We need better record keeping. And as I think uh, Dr. Martha made the point, Rosa Parks, as wonderful a human being as she was, obviously, was not the only person refusing to give up her seat. There were many people who um, the, the, it was time to take a stand, and the stand was taken, and we are still, I guess, uh, called to a higher ground. Let let us, if we could, Dr. Martin, talk uh, now about uh, uh, honoring those who who came before us. As you alluded to, UVA President Teresa Sullivan has formed a commission on slavery uh, at Thomas Jefferson's uh, University of Virginia. And can we talk a little about that, how your office in particular 
but the university in, in general through your office is partnered with the community and uh, and and one project only one that of, of the many that are proposed the african-american cemetery i oh yes i don't think people uh, all right i'll put it this way i saw amistad and i don't know what i thought about how i understood that slaves were brought forced to the country uh they were brought by ships they were in chains all of that i got i had that image of this horrible thing and that when the slave uh, uh, shippers were uh, afraid of being caught, they threw people overboard. All that I, I understood, horrible. But the thing that hit me in Amistad, which never occurred to me, is that when the slaves, the chained slaves, were fed, nobody gave them plates and knives and forks and spoons. I don't know why that hit me the way it did. They just plopped yeah. the hot meal of whatever it was into their bare hands. And so the, by the same token, and I love history. I'm not a historian, but I drive around, and I look for places, and I've discovered a cemetery behind St. Elizabeth's Hospital in Washington, D.C., and, and have since had guests on who've explained to me that many of those people were people who were either enslaved or not, did not have family or not uh, cared about because of their mental health or whatever, and they were experimented on in the United States of America. Oh, yeah. And, yeah, so with that sort of introduction, talk to us about how uh, the University of Virginia, through your office in particular, uh, is trying to address our need to know. Perhaps uh, it'd be good for me to put my office in context um, related to our goals. We were essentially uh, established in 2005, and this was after President John Castine put together a commission on diversity and equity in 2003 mm -hmm. to study race relations, biases, and other things here around grounds and community. When the office was established, I came on board. I was on the search committee that brought in the first uh, VP and Chief Officer for Diversity and Equity, and within six months, I was actually part of the office. I had just mm -hmm. finished two terms as chair of emergency medicine in the Department of Emergency Medicine. I'm still a professor and tenured and contributed in various ways. But when we established the office, uh, basically it was to promote an inclusive and welcoming and respectful env environment here at the university, mm -hmm. but also to encourage commitment to diversity and equity in all aspects of academics, extracurricular activities, the workplace, and within the surrounding communities. So I always tell people, when I was working in the emergency department, the community would come to the hospital, and I would see people from the community coming there. In the Office for Diversity and Equity, I get a chance to get out into the community mm -hmm. uh, to do a number of things and, and to collaborate and to synergize. So many things coming out of the University of Virginia and community collaboration, community health fairs, as I said, the MLK celebration, I won't go down the whole list. Um, we'll come back and talk a little bit about the John Castine Third Diversity Equity Inclusion Leadership Award. But basically, uh, where you were going with the slavery pieces, that I think you wanted to hear something about our President's Commission on Slavery in the University, yes, yes. which which was established in 2013. Uh -huh. So, with April 2013, during the President's Cabinet meeting, President Sullivan's Cabinet yeah. meeting, all the VPs there. I was there as a VP. We had invited guests from the community as well and students to talk about 
uh, the possibility of establishing a President's Commission on Slavery and University, galvanizing work that had been done by a number of organizations such as UCARE, Woodson Institute, a group called Mill, Memorial to Enslaved Laborers, it's a student mm. group yes. that uh, would like to see a, a larger memorial to the enslaved laborers to recognize their contribution. Well, six months after that presentation, the cabinet meeting, President Sullivan, in September 2013, formed the commission. We had names available to her that were, that were recommended. And so we have members of the, from the university and the community and alumni on, on this commission. Basically, we formed five groups or task forces. One is on um, curriculum and education. And most recently, this spring actually, we develop a course on slavery and its legacies, and mm -hmm. uh, it's been oversubscribed by students. Very popular course. Mm -hmm. uh, we're working on a heritage trail, uh, mapping significant sites related to uh, the life of slaves on grounds. Um, the rotunda, as you know, is under renovation, yes. and when it opens back up uh, this summer, uh, the visitor center will incorporate the history of slavery, yeah. and there will be exhibits and uh, interactive media. And we are working on a memorial, a physical memorial. We will have, going through the, the necessary steps, presenting to the Board of Visitors. We'll have to have an arts consultant to help us determine the location, what type of art actually will we be utilizing. But what we have accomplished includes the commemoration of the African American Cemetery, mm -hmm. which was discovered adjacent to the University Cemetery. So. Around 2012, I believe it was, the university was planning to expand the cemetery. And through a phase one archaeological survey, mm -hmm. uh, as the topsoil was being removed, the outlines of 67 grave sites were discovered. Yes. 40% of which were uh, students. Mm -hmm. No, I'm sorry, children. Uh -huh. And they, a few of them had footstones and headstones, but not enough information to determine who they were. Mm. So going back through alumni bulletin and, and uh, records, we were able to determine that uh, these were servants, these were slaves buried north of the University Cemetery next to a creek uh, close to the wooded area. Mm. In October of um, 2014, we commemorated the African American Cemetery, and it had been used as um, uh, a, a, a nursery for uh, carbonaceous material, you know, for for wood chips and uh -huh. plants and things of that nature. Yes. And people were using it to tailgate for football games that nobody knew was a cemetery underneath. Uh -huh. but now it has beautiful three rail split fence, intermittent stone posts, and signage that tells you all about the cemetery. So we had a candlelight service one night back in October 2014 that was planned by members of the community, by the clergy. Uh, it was well attended. There was a libation, the pouring of water, um, and the commemoration of the cemetery. It's very beautifully done. Mm. So very proud of that. And mm. then Gibbons House, the new dormitory oh, yes. uh -huh. that opened up this past fall, is named after William and Isabella Gibbons, a married couple who were enslaved um, by different UVA professors during the mid-19th century. I mean, we cannot change the history that took place. Yes. But in a way, you know, certainly things can be done to commemorate, to keep history alive, and to remind people who built the institution and, and have respectful uh, locations that we do this contemplation. 
the cemetery. You can contemplate there. Think yes. about those folks who uh, who went before us and who, who supported the building and who actually did a lot of the physical labor. The Gibbons, Gibbons House, after emancipation, William Gibbons became a minister in town. I mean, he became a minister at Charlesville's oldest black church, First Baptist Church. Oh, yes. And his wife, Isabella, uh, became a teacher at the Freedman mm. School, which is now the Jefferson School. So yes. they were not only persevered as slaves at the University of Virginia, but when they were in the community, they were productive citizens. So very, very engaging. There are, there are many other things we're doing. We have a, a community task force that's uh, working and ever present out in the community, engaging staff, alumni, and students um, along the work of the President's Commission of Slavery University. We've been collaborating with Monticello and Montpelier, Ashland Highlands and Mormon community churches, and uh, Jefferson School African American Heritage Center, basically connecting the past to the present in in meaningful ways. Mm -hmm. So this President's Commission of Slavery University is very busy, a lot of work to do. There's a report that's due President Sullivan for the Bicentennial, which actually starts in 2017. Uh More work to do, but exciting work that's taking place. You know, I recently, as as a matter of fact, I've we've met a couple, two or three times, I think. But uh, I think the last time uh, we we were in the same room, anyway, even if we didn't get a chance to speak, was Friday, January twenty ninth, and it was a memorial for enslaved laborers, past, present, Correct. and future. Talk right. to us about that. I thought that was. I'm going to ask you something on the other side, but I thought that was. First of all, it was incredibly well attended mostly by students, which I really find encouraging. But uh, the speakers each had quite a bit to say and certainly uh, pulled the mind and heart in different directions, perhaps. But uh, give give me your your feelings about that event, if you don't mind. Right. That, that event was planned months ago as we planned the other MLK celebration events. Uh-huh. Actually, the year before, we had the President's Commission of Slavery University presentation uh, to the community at the African American Heritage Center. This particular presentation was at um, Harrison Small Library, uh-huh. and it was packed. Uh, we had students, we had uh, several members of the Board of Visitors in attendance. Uh, President Sullivan was there, other yes. faculty members. Uh, of the speakers, we had one alum who was an original founder of Mel Mamalton Slave Labors, and she mm-hmm. gave some background information and showed images of a contest that was held around 2012, I believe it was. Yes. Anyway, the students held a contest for drawings, renditions of what they thought would be, you know, an outstanding memorial to slave laborers. Uh-huh. Uh, there were three winners for second and third, uh, beautiful renditions, but uh, they were, they're not architecturally uh, equipped or, or sound or weathering or, you know, keep it being not mutilated. Uh-huh. So some of the, the artwork perhaps could be advanced. But where we are now is to take those images or create new images and then look at what's happened at other institutions like University of North Carolina, Brown, Women Murray actually studying, putting up a mall, so that we can come up with the best design going forward. Mm-hmm. But that's just, she was one speaker. Then we had our postdoc research associate, Kelly Beats, who gave a talk, and Kelly works closely with me and Kurt Von Dyck. We're the co-chairs of the President's Commission of Slavery and University. Mm-hmm. And uh, she gave a little update on with the, with the Memorial to Enslaved Laborers Task Force under the President's Commission of Slavery and University, what we're doing. And there was a fellow, 
uh, Lewis Nelson, who's an architect, architectural faculty, and he gave a you know passionate talk about the academical village and the statues that you see there, yes. and the images that you see, but those are devoid of African American contributions or, or very specifically slaves, the enslaved contributions. Mm-hmm. So it, the whole program was to talk about the past, how the Milwaukee Slave Laborers Group came about talk about where we are now with the President's Commission of Slavery and University and what we need to do. Yes. Of course, we had board members present as well uh, who made comments about the process taking this forward. And so we don't erect anything new on grounds unless we get approval from the board, and that's what we're seeking now. I understand. All right, yeah. then. This is, as you say, this is an ongoing process, and um, I certainly look forward to being a, a part of it. Uh, it is, uh, I again, I stress that the the fact that so many, from the president, uh, Teresa Sullivan, to so many students being so actively interested in being educated in all of this. They want to know. They want to know. They yep. had great questions uh, the other day. But we mentioned, we sort of alluded to the uh, recognizing leaders for diversity and equity right. and inclusion. Could we chat a bit about that and what that's all about? You do this right. once a year, so we, yes? April 2nd, 2010, in the name of John T. Castine III, that that award is called the John T. Castine III Diversity, Equity, Inclusion Leadership Award, and it recognizes individuals for their outstanding contributions to diversity, equity, and inclusion at the University of Virginia, and um, the nominees must be current faculty, student, or staff, mm-hmm. and when they are nominated, um, the committee is looking for uh, a demonstration of deep commitment to uh, diversity and, and distinct passion, um, looking for uh, leadership uh, roles that individuals have played, increasing diversity, equity, and inclusion. And you may think um, that's difficult for students only being here, you know, four years or so, particularly as undergrads. Graduate students uh, can apply and can be nominated as well. Mm-hmm. But we've had um, see, six years of this now. John Castine himself was the very first award winner. And uh, he was not at the luncheon that we held, uh, but he had pre-recorded um, his speech in accepting this award. And of course, Castine had been 20-some years at the University of Virginia, uh, working in various capacities uh, as president and through the admission office. And you know, he's still here as an emeritus professor. But you know, he said basically that in accepting the award, that he was grateful and aware that in the end, the award was not for him personally, but it recognizes what the university had done over time. And, mm-hmm. and that was about, you know, recruiting minority students who and low-income students, first-generation students who didn't feel that they could come here, setting up the Commission on Diversity and Equity, establishing the Office for Diversity and Equity. So, you know, it, he contributed quite a bit to help us get to where we are. And... Um, so he also said, and the accomplishments that led to this award just happened to occur during his lifetime as one of the curators or, or keepers. We have this nomination each year. Last, uh, The second award winner was Angela Davis. Yes. We have a faculty member here by the name of Angela Davis, uh-huh. Bob Covert, and then a faculty member, Kim Ford Majri. And then the last few years, we have a couple students, uh, Hajar Ahmed, but also Dr. Martin Davidson uh, was a winner. And... Um, 
He's in Darden School, and then Professor Joel Hawkinsmith over at the medical school one last year, along with a student by the name of Ashley Blackwell. Mm-hmm. So we hold this luncheon the last either last week of March or the first week of April. And I'm sorry I don't have the exact date mm-hmm. in front of me now when the next award will be. But we are receiving nominations for this award, and uh, looking forward to that uh, wonderful luncheon when we will have the presentation. I can't see this generally at the lunch. Fantastic. Yeah. Well, thank you so much for that, uh, for, for this entire interview, uh, Dr. Martin. Uh, we wish you all the best in this, and, and Dr. Teresa Sullivan, and all of the University of Virginia. As my grandmama used to say, the best way not to repeat a past mistake is to do things differently in the present and future. And, um, there you go. So, and, uh, that's, and that's what's happening. But you, you do have to look at the past, and that's how you learn from you it, do. and then you move exactly. forward. Uh, so Absolutely. Thank you. We've been talking to Dr. Marcus Martin, the Vice President and Chief Officer for Diversity and Equity at the University of Virginia. It has been an enlightening conversation, and um, we so appreciate you being on the show today and all that you do on grounds and out in the community as well. Thank you so much, sir. Thank you, Marcello, and just be safe in, in this weather. Thank you. You, you too. Take care. Uh, Bye-bye. Stay with us as we'll be right back with a final comment from The Reasonable Voice. And now, another film rental discovery. Welcome to the Indie Film Minute. There are heroes and villains in all forms of storytelling. They drive the story forward and give the audience someone compelling to root for. But what if the hero and the villain are the same person? Can you still be a hero if your path to get there wasn't the most honorable? This is the central question of David Gordon Green's George Washington. In a rural North Carolina town, a group of kids enjoy their summer. They swim, hang out, try to steal cars, and fall in and out of love. The odd one out is George, a boy whose skull never fully hardened after he was born. When George accidentally kills another member of the group, the summer turns into something more somber and uncertain. No longer innocent and carefree, the boys hide the body and attempt to move on with their lives. However, George's rescue of a drowning boy thrusts him into the limelight in the role of local hero, a responsibility with which he has difficulty coming to grips. This film is nothing short of stunning. Beautiful cinematography and the sharp acting of the town's denizens combine to form a poetic exploration of right and wrong. Even more powerfully, it's a stark reminder of that last idyllic summer before adulthood took hold. George Washington. Not in theaters. Discovery through rental. Hello, I'm Marcello Rolando, the reasonable voice. Thanking you for joining us in becoming one of the reasonable voices heard round the world. Real grown-ups listen to children. Hillary is right. It's not just about Wall Street. It's about wealthy people taking homes from needy families in public housing. It's about pharmaceuticals risking the public health and welfare with diminished production of medications. It's about finally putting women and children first, if only because of Alzheimer's. It's about draining American know-how by stunting educated expertise with bank loans reminiscent of recession-causing mortgages. 
It's about people like Scarelli being America's economic Ebola and corporatism's hedge funds shrinking our brain size like a Zika virus. It's about being bitten by the ideology of the streets, K, Wall, and Main, and internationally leaving our children behind. It's about failing humanity's bookends, elderly experience and youthful curiosity while ignoring Syrian children starving to death before being bombed. It's about the silence that eats our young, not just BP, Exxon, and Cheney's Halliburton, but Southern California's methane, not just ISIS, but FSIS. It's simply reading, writing, and arithmetic, too many congressional-funded foggy-bottom wars leaving too few tax dollars for EPA, FDA, and ATF. It's about 30-somethings' diet transforming them into our crumbling infrastructure, expecting millennials to be equipped for to infinity and beyond. It's about the inevitable awakening of more mayors to contaminated cold water in their face. It's about our bequeathing our inheritance from LBJ, Nixon, Reagan, and GW's Mushroom Cloud Gang to our children. It's about needing more than one person to reform a politicized Supreme Court and obstructionist Congress. It's about saving ourselves with either one who's played chicken with international bullies, bears, foxtails, and wolf packs, or millions whose New Year's resolutions are to appear on the Washington Mall to fill in foreign policy gaps. It's about Jeb Bush backers needing state governments, not D.C., running things, because conservative money is buying up Abbott and all the Red Costello governors, Brownback, Snyder, and the Scots of Florida and Wisconsin, Rick and Walker. It's about only disciples of Cruz Slees and Trump con job marks as the new Great White Hope. It's about We Built That. Historically, girls, women, and their herstory of college, military, and LGBT rape, spousal abuse, hungry children, minimum wage earners, American human trafficking, drugs, and prison was largely untold. It's about that and about this. The Catholic University of America's Father Harkey once asked me to help a high school Sound of Music production. The director nun asked if, as a white von Trapp, I mind kissing a black Maria, for none of the potential leading boys her age would. I gave Harolyn Blackwell her first stage kiss. When actress-producer Lili Sobieski was around eight years old, she was the dear friend of the beautiful little daughter of a soap opera writer with whom I was sharing New York City. Neither young lady wanted Lili's younger brother involved in their play date, so I was cast as the grown-up. Preoccupied with showing me all his toys, from which I suppose I was expected to choose, the two camps remained separate but equal, until he showed me his bow, arrows, and sword. Then the entire Upper West Side condominium, filled with her mother's paintings, became Indians versus Zorro. Nonetheless, upon the mother's return, Lily happily announced it was the only time her little brother had not intruded on girl time. Then, with a kiss upon my cheek, she asked me to come over for all their playdates. 
No, it's not just about Wall Street, but about all those children voting for the first time. Because if we the people say, voting is not my job, we can expect followers to lead us into food and water wars. It's about young students learning from the Iowa caucus, saving the life of their teacher, Melissa Harris Perry, and about a young mother feeling the heartbeat of her dead son in the body of a little girl whose life was saved by a mother's greatest sacrifice. Some of us have to be the grown-ups. It's about that. Join us. Become one of the reasonable voices heard round the world. Thank you. Thank you for continuing to listen to, support, and share the Reasonable Voice Blog Talk Radio with family and friends, especially online. We enjoy hearing from you, and in response, yes, we are now accepting new company and business advertisers and welcoming organizations seeking to be one of our sponsors. So please do continue to email us at thereasonablevoice at gmail.com. However, if you prefer to simply make a donation, your donations are greatly appreciated and can be made through PayPal by clicking on the donate button found at the top of the homepage of the Reasonable Voice. Website. Thank you for joining us today to make every day as reasonable as possible. We hope you will download and share our downloadable podcasts. I'm Marcello Rolando, the Reasonable Voice, hoping you will become one of the reasonable voices heard round the world. Music